agree with you, Mr. Bish, on everything. Apart from the place we mustn't mention. The colonists. They're now called the United States, sir. Are they? Goodness me. The United States. Let my people go. The slaves are mine. The lives are mine. All that they own is mine. I do not know your God, nor will I let Israel go. I have often said, and I will continue to say as long as I'm privileged to sit behind a microphone, because I truly believe this, that the study of the Constitution, in many ways the study of history, but specifically the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, is very similar in its methodology to the study of Torah. I've said that before. In fact, I did an episode a few years ago called How to Study the Constitution and Torah. It's remarkable to me because there are so many similarities. Now, I'm not saying that the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence are scripture. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the study of the Constitution is similar to the study of Torah. The methodology is similar. The depth can be very similar. My own faith journey took me on a long path, and we've talked about this before, from asking questions to immersing myself in study in a way that Hitherto, I had not been a part of. Now, again, I am not saying that you did this or do this. What I'm saying is it was my experience in my previous faith walk that Bible study was one of two things. It was either a ridiculous, and I do mean ridiculous, exposition on the definition of each and every word in a sentence— what does this word mean? What does this word mean? Hey, can we talk context here? Can we, you know, anyway, it was absurd, although it did sell a lot of Strong's dictionaries, I'm sure. Or even worse, it was, and, and this was taught when I was in seminary, it was inductive reasoning. In fact, the class was called inductive Bible study. Inductive reasoning is badly flawed it has its times, I guess, when you could use it, but as a general rule of thumb, it's a bad idea to start with your conclusions and cherry-pick data to support it, ignoring anything that doesn't support it, which is what inductive reasoning does. And consequently, it didn't take me long to figure out that inductive Bible study was exactly that. God help you if you had a question about something that didn't fit the agenda. Oh, Lord. Boy, did I, uh, I caught a few things for that. I'm not saying that you do that. I'm not even saying your denomination does that. What I'm saying is that was my experience, and it caused me to ask more questions. It caused me to look elsewhere. And eventually, through a long process, I ended up where I am 
which is in full-fledged Judaism. I converted fully in 2008. Um, it was a long and at times very difficult path. I'm not going to lie to you. That said, one of the things that I have appreciated greatly about Judaism is its willingness to study in ways that hitherto I had not experienced. The, the depth to which we, we go in things and the ideas that I'm sitting in classes and I'm familiar with the material. I've done the review beforehand. And all of a sudden, it's like somebody opened a window over there and the light went off, comes in, and it's, holy cow. I never even thought of that. I never even considered that. And it's not that complex of thing. It really isn't. It wasn't, it's hard to believe. It's been a decade. It's been a decade and, and a year since I sat down in front of a microphone and we introduced Constitution Thursday, the idea of Constitution Thursday. And I've said this many times. Compared to then to now, I'm almost embarrassed that we were willing to do Constitution Thursday back then because we didn't know nothing. We were badly, we, doing the royal we, uh, were badly ignorant. But by immersing ourselves by immersing myself into the study of it, I found new joy in it. I found things that were not inductively reasoned. Well, I think this, and the Constitution says something about it there, so it must be so. As opposed to that, we did a lot of deductive reasoning, deductive. We didn't start with the conclusion. We started with the facts. We worked our way through it. That can make people uncomfortable. I will tell you, from a faith standpoint, there are still people of my seminary class that will not talk to me. They refuse to talk to me. And not just my seminary class, but around my class. They won't talk to me. Uh, won't even give me the time of day. Why? Because he, he abandoned the faith. He went somewhere else. It's outrageous. Oh, maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Who cares? My journey is my journey. It's not your journey, so why do you care how God speaks to someone else? In any case, I, I experienced much the same thing with Constitution Thursday. We reached a point where, how, it's interesting because this past weekend was the anniversary of Andrew Jackson's censure by the Senate, which he said was unconstitutional. He was censured for, some, for doing something that a more modern president, Obama, did as well. And remarkably, Jackson believed that it was unconstitutional for the Senate to censure him, challenged them to impeach him, and of course they weren't going to do that. And at the end of the day, the record ended up being expunged. Jump forward to, you know, 2009, 2010, and I guess it was around 2011 maybe. Dave, me, gets he disinvited to the local Tea Party because I pointed out the fact that the president was doing what all presidents have done. It's perfectly acceptable, and hither, up to this point, it has been the interpretation of the Constitution. So the fact that you don't like it doesn't make it unconstitutional. The fact that I don't like certain things doesn't make them absolute when it comes to Torah, does it? Maybe... Maybe I like bacon. 
That doesn't make it kosher. And no amount of me saying mental gymnastics and rationalizations to make it kosher can make it kosher. Does that mean we can't talk about things? No, it doesn't. In fact, it means kind of the opposite. Last week, we were talking about getting ready for Passover. And the local rabbi here was talking about the the interpretation of what the rabbis, the, the, the sages, believe about the labors of the slaves, the Israelites in Egypt. And if you have any passing familiar with the story, familiarity with the story at all, you know that Pharaoh, whoever it was, whether it was Ramses II or someone else, is he is increasing the burdens on the Hebrews because he wants to break them. They're following Moshe, Moses. And it's, it was an intriguing discussion because one of the things that came out of it was the back-breaking burdens. And does that mean that it was actually breaking their backs? Because again, two Jews, three opinions. If you broke all their backs, how would they leave? Right? Couldn't have been back-breaking. So what, what does it mean when they say that? Because every word in the Torah has a specific reason for being there, contextually. Well, what most of the rabbis held, and hold to this day, is that the labors were designed to break their spirit. It, they were designed to convince them that they were following the wrong path, that allowing Moses to continue to try to free them, to continue to try to get them to leave Egypt, was a bad idea. And if only you would disavow Moshe, if only you would reject your God and accept me, Pharaoh, as the man who makes the river flow, the sun rise, the entire world sits upon me. If only you would follow me, then everything would be cool and, and you'd be great. And, and Pharaoh's attitude towards this whole thing was kind of like, uh, you know, <laughs> It's me. I, I just stop doing that. And his labors were designed to break the spirit, break the back of their spirit, the people's spirit, so that they would reject Moses, reject God, and consequently remain in slavery, remain under the tyranny of Pharaoh, which even later they would complain, at least, at least we had food to eat. Maybe we maybe we weren't free, but at least we had food to eat, right? At least we at least we had place to sleep and water to drink. All you've done is drag us out here. Does this sound at all familiar to you? The labors were designed to break their spirit. And I thought to myself, how intriguing is that? Because, again, I do a lot of contrasting Torah to Constitution to study of the two. And it didn't take me long to realize that there once was a king who believed that the earth rose and set on his very existence. He actually believed at one point that a rivers could be made to follow his command. Now you might say, well, but Dave George III was crazy. Before he was crazy, he decided that the Mississippi River was wrong on the maps of the people that had actually been there and seen it. He decided their maps were wrong and rerouted the Mississippi River to where he wanted it. 
This was a man who believed that he owned everything, including the colonies and the colonists. They were not full Englishmen because they did not live in England, was his opinion. And so consequently, he was their father. He was their benefactor. He was the man to whom their allegiance should lie. And when they began to follow George Washington, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson, and others who were well-versed in communications and that sort of thing, what did he do? He increased their burdens. He increased their burdens. They made them back-breaking in an attempt to break their spirit, in an attempt to convince the average people who were the ones bearing the brunt of his righteous indignation that they were being misled. And just like Pharaoh was trying to convince the Hebrews that they were being misled, George III was trying to convince the Americans, the the colonists, as he referred to them, that they were being misled. Two men at different points in history taking a very similar tactic, a very similar idea, a very similar concept. Well, just back-breaking labors, back-breaking taxes, back-breaking things. So much so that Thomas Jefferson would take the time to write them all down in a document called the Declaration of Independence. And the remarkable reality of it is that neither worked. In fact, you could make an argument that as the, as the burdens became more and more and more intense, the resistance grew with it. The Hebrew people, chastised by Pharaoh's whips, didn't acquiesce. They didn't roll under. They didn't just give up. They didn't, although they complained a lot. They didn't do that. The colonies, although there was a lot of hardship and there were people who wanted to stay with the king, they didn't just roll over and say, "What's mm, it? We give up." He's he's right. A dynamic leader brought the Hebrews to their freedom, which of course we celebrate this week with the festival of Passover, and we eat the unleavened bread and we remind ourselves of the, of the glories of being free men, free nations. We remind ourselves that we are free because God overcame Pharaoh and we didn't give up. It's, it's a celebration of the birth of, the, of the, the Israeli nation, the Israelite nation, as a, as a, as a, as a unified people. It's my Rabbi said the other day, happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah. So, yep, it wouldn't be a Hanukkah if there hadn't been a Passover. So happy Hanukkah, <laughs> which I thought was amusing. Sometimes it takes one man. Sometimes it takes several men. But the bottom line is they believed in what they were doing, and they didn't give up, and they didn't allow the peoples that they were, see- that they were trying to save to give up either. And eventually, the Hebrews were led through the desert to the promised land and became the Jewish nation. And the colonies 
as King George III still liked to refer to them, became the United States. So they are the United States. Well, we haven't mentioned them, he says, angrily. It's a remarkable comparison to me in a lot of ways, and it's, I realize it's not exegesical and it's not, it's not, you know, scripture, but there is a remarkable comparison between the two that I appreciate. And I appreciate it because I can take the time to study these things and see those parallels that lie beneath the surface. And this Passover season, that's what I would encourage of you. Sometimes it's easy to just let things flow by, like the Nile River or the Mississippi River, not really pay a whole lot of attention to what's going on. But there are eddies and undercurrents, bends and curves, backflows, all of which will affect history, all of which will affect how we see things and how we do things. And most importantly, we should never, ever give up. Because if you give up, then Pharaoh and King George III win. And that's not who we serve, is it?